Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Whiteflies. It's a sucking garden insect pest and it's easy to spot. Shake a plant. All of a sudden, there's a cloud of flying white insects in your face. Well, that's whiteflies. They can overwhelm a garden full of vegetables and flowers, as well as certain trees and shrubs, especially during warm weather. Whiteflies excrete sticky honeydew. They cause yellowing or death of the leaves. There is good news, though. There are a lot of beneficial insects, the garden good guys, that can help you do battle against whiteflies. Another warm season yard issue for those who live in milder climates, the proliferation of Bermuda grass. In some areas of the country, it's a desirable turf type for a lawn. The problems begin, though, when it starts spreading to other parts of the yard, which it can do quite easily and in a variety of ways. If you're looking to eradicate Bermuda grass without the use of chemicals, we have some answers. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, and we're brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in about 30 minutes. Let's go. One pest that a lot of gardeners have, and it seems to be a lot in the shade, although they can happen in sunny gardens as well, are white flies. They're tiny sap-sucking insects that can get quite abundant in both vegetable and ornamental plantings, especially during warm weather. They excrete that honeydew that causes yellowing or the death of the leaves. Outbreaks usually occur when either the plant is in the wrong place or there's a natural biological control disruption. Management is difficult once populations get high. Guess who's here? America's favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, with more on whitefly controls. Whiteflies, grrr! Yeah, there can be very frustrating. Especially in a greenhouse. Yes, especially in a greenhouse. Yeah. Because the things that will eat them, the beneficial insects or the natural enemies, aren't in the greenhouse. That can be solved. The predators and parasites that attack whiteflies can be purchased and released. And to do that, you need to contact an insectary. Uh, there are places that actually grow these insects and send them to you in a form that you can release in a situation like a greenhouse. Outdoors, they're releasing them is uh, less effective because they, these beneficials can go wherever they want to go. Maybe won't, uh, be as able to find the white fly population, but in a greenhouse, they can be very effective control. And there are all sorts of different white flies yes, as well. There are. And, uh, once you get them, they are very tough to control. They are. And they're the best way to control them is to get their beneficials, which often means you have to put up with a population of white flies for a little while. There are grapes on the fence between myself and the house behind me, and they are not my grapes. They belong to the person behind me. And I was pruning them to, to keep them out of the, my walking space on my side of the fence. And they were full of white flies. And I did absolutely nothing because I knew that the beneficials then would be able to come in and attack the white flies. And went the way to get a good population of beneficials is to have what they eat there, which is the insect itself. 
What are some of these garden good guys that can go after white flies? Well, lacewings and lady beetles and the little tiny wasps are three that will go after the white flies. White flies have what we call complete metamorphosis. So the adult lays an egg. The egg hatches into a larva. And the larva generally is a non-moving white blob on the underside of the leaf. It may have fringe around it. It may not. And then the larva goes into a pupal stage, which is in this blob place. And then it hatches and becomes an adult and flies away. White flies mate with each other and the process starts all over again. As we've talked about in the past, about having good bug hotels, someplace for the uh, garden good guys to raise their young and and have a meal that isn't a bug, uh, you need to put in other plants. Now, you you mentioned you could buy some of these good guys at an insectary, then release them, but you ought to have the plants established that they will want to stay in your yard. Right. The good guys need to eat, and they're going to need protein, which is going to be eating the white fly in the uh, larval or pupal stage. But they also need some sugar, and that's what comes from the flowers and the plants that are nearby. So you need a population of those flowers nearby so that they can get a balanced diet. Yeah, and as far as attracting lacewings, planting plants like yarrow or angelica, golden marguerite, uh, cosmos, the Queen Anne's lace, fennel, dandelions even, Mm -hmm. will attract uh, uh, the good guys. Have you seen those signs people put in their yard that say, I'm not growing weeds, I'm feeding the good guys, I'm feeding the insects? Well, there's a whole other show we could do about the (laughs) benefits of dandelions in a landscape. And if you have dandelions in your lawn, you should be thankful for that. It's, It's improving the soil. It's Yeah, they have that deep taproot. Ladybugs, of course, need a home, too. And we, we've talked about this before, too, is the fact that if you buy ladybugs and release them, 95% of them, according to university studies, will fly away home. Mm-hmm. So That's their first. They're collected in dormancy. And their first instinct, once they come out of dormancy, is to fly like yeah. miles, like 25 miles. Yeah. The ladybug, then, if you want to release them, maybe you need some plants uh, where they may want to live. And one of the favorite habitats for ladybugs are ornamental grasses. Mm-hmm. They will overwinter in there. Yes, down deep. Yeah, in deer grass, mm-hmm. Muhlenbergia, things like that. So that's something to consider. Uh, ladybugs also, besides uh, some of the other uh, plants that we've talked about that attract beneficials, uh, the yarrows, bugleweed is a good one, coriander, California buckwheat, one of my favorite California native plants for the number of beneficials it attracts. Mm-hmm. There are many different California buckwheats, um, and they're all beneficial in that regard. And what's nice about the California buckwheat, it has a bloom season here in California from May through December. It's very long, yes. Yeah, and the the flowers actually change color through mm-hmm. the season, much like a sedum would do. It's always nice then to have those plants around so that you can raise your own ladybug population. Or certainly feed the one that flew 25 miles from someplace else. <laughs> yes. All right. Again, with whiteflies, much like with aphids, there are reflective mulches that might work. Yes. Same thing. Yep. Because it d- disorients them when they fly because they, they look down and they see a reflection of the sky. So they think, I'll, I'll just keep moving. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not in the right place. Yeah. How about ants and whiteflies? Are ants as big a problem for the gardener as far as herding whiteflies around as they are with herding aphids around? I've seen ants way more on the aphids than on the whiteflies. Whiteflies, at least some of the species, as you said, there are many different whiteflies, produce honeydew, and the ants are attracted to that and will protect the whiteflies from what we call the good guys. 
And again, a clean plant is a happy plant that attracts beneficials. So wash off your plants. Mm-hmm. They don't like the dust. Right. right. The beneficials. Now, I remember one winter when I decided I'm going to grow tomatoes in the greenhouse for the winter because I don't want to buy supermarket tomatoes oh. from November through May or June. Were you successful? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. For many reasons. The biggest problem growing a small determinate tomato in a greenhouse is the white flies. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it got to the point where there were just so many white flies. I'm going to get rid of the, those plants <laughs> that attract the most white flies. Mm-hmm. And that that's a strategy. Mm-hmm. You put them in the trash mm-hmm. and then control the rest. And it got to the point in the greenhouse where to control the white flies, besides throwing the most infested plants out, I, I use an organic pyrethrin insecticide called Bugbuster O. It was organically registered. And uh, the problem is being able to spray all portions of the plant. It has to be applied repeatedly in order for it to be effective. But it's still an ongoing battle. Yes, it's tough to get the pesticide onto the white fly because when you touch the plant, or get near it, they fly away. So you, you want to do some of the, certainly the control on the other life stages. I find it interesting that the pyrethrin insecticide is registered organic. Well, pyrethrin is a refined pyrethrum. Pyrethrum is collected from flowers. Chrysanthemums. Chrysanthemum, yes. Mm-hmm. And if you get pyrethrum, then you're getting the whole molecule. And if you're getting pyrethrin, you're getting a slightly refined extract of that. And But they both work. They're both naturally occurring substances on the planet. And when they break down, they break in, down into naturally occurring substances on the planet. If you get pyrethroid, ends in a D, you're getting one that's made in a lab and it will not break down into something that already exists on Earth. And Bugbuster O, made by Monterey, is listed for control on 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 19 lines of bad guys. That's a lot of pests. Yeah, it, there's like eight controls. or nine on uh, pests listed on each of those 19 lines. So yeah. we're looking at 200 maybe? Uh, Yeah. Close to, I mean, white flies is down. They're under W. They're they're alphabetized. Yeah, uh, aphids under A. So you got that. Japanese beetles are on there too. Uh, but again, you got to read and follow all label directions. And if that little wasp is is inside or is hovering around the white flies, trying to find a nice pupil case to lay its eggs in, you will kill it as well with the pyrethrum. Exactly. And bees as well should not be around when you're using yes, it. Yes, they're very sensitive to Yeah, I didn't to have to worry about that in a greenhouse, but still, right. if you're using it outdoors, and, and I, frankly, I think Bugbuster O is probably only meant for outdoor application. I don't know if it's registered for use indoors or not. And that's a good point. Uh, to following the label includes using it where it said you says you can use it. If it says an indoor situation, then you can use it in a greenhouse. But if it does not say that or does not specify a greenhouse specifically, it is illegal to apply it in a greenhouse. In my defense. I used it probably 20 years ago for that purpose. Maybe it wasn't on the label then. Or you took the plants out and treated them outdoors and then put them back in. I like that. Okay. (laughs) We'll run with that. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah. White flies are tough. There's no doubt about it. You can use a yellow sticky tab to monitor white flies as well as for aphids. And it also attracts thrips and fungus gnats and shore flies, several of the pests that we find annoying in the garden. Uh, But... 
with white flies, it's pretty obvious. They fly into your face. Yeah. They're, you kind of don't need to monitor that way, although it would help you monitor quantities. When I worked for Sacramento County Cooperative Extension, we had a huge, it was in the early 90s, a huge infestation of ash white fly. Mm-hmm. So much so that people weren't able to picnic outside because there were so many white flies. And it's called ash white fly because one of its places it hung out was an ash trees. And there are a number of ash trees in the local region. And so one of our jobs was to make a suction instrument. It was a bottle and it had two holes and a stopper in the top with two pieces of metal coming out. And you attach the a tube like a plastic tube to each of those pieces of metal. And then we f- drove down to a part of California that had good control from natural enemies of ash whitefly and used our little jar things. And we sucked on one tube to create a vacuum in the jar and used the other tube to vacuum up white flies and their predators so and released those that was a fun day i think the reason the ash white fly population has been reduced uh, in our area is because the modesto ash trees basically died that yes <laughs> that's part of it but also we then came and brought what was the contents of our jar which had the, the beneficials in it and released it in high population ash white fly areas so I was part of that, too. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. Basically, the last resorts then, oils, soaps, any sort of uh, chemicals. Right. Always the last resort. You yeah. want to try everything else first. You want to try thinning out the plants so the beneficials can get there, washing the plants so the dust is removed, controlling any ants that happen to be tending to the white flies. Removing the most infected plant, especially if it's in a greenhouse situation, watching for beneficials. And if you see pupil cases that are black there, you've got beneficials in them and waiting for the beneficials to show up. You have to have some patience to deal with this. But yes, as a last resort, you use the pesticides. And remember, too, those good bug hotels are important for building up the beneficial insect populations that can help keep future whitefly populations at bay. Very true. All right. Whiteflies, we can do this. Yes. Thank you, Debbie. You're welcome, Fred. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied smart pot owners who have been using the same smart pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose smart pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate smart pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in smart pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of smart pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the smart pot. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. 
Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We're here at Harvest Day at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. It's a beautiful Saturday in August. And yes, people have questions. Now, if only Debbie Flower, America's favorite retired college horticultural professor, was here to help. But then I think I can handle this one without her here. Hi. Thanks for dropping by. Hi there. My name's Susie, and I live in Sacramento County. Susie, what's what's your question? I have a raised bed that has been invaded by Bermuda grass. Ooh, what sort of raised bed is it? Does it have wood sides or yeah. brick? It has wood sides. It's uh, three by eight, about two feet deep. Okay. Three foot width is excellent for a raised bed because you can reach the middle without stepping into the bed. As soon as you get to over four feet, you start having problems. But with three feet, you can get in there easily to do something like, oh, I don't know, remove Bermuda grass, for example. For example, yes. Bermuda grass is a triple threat weed because if you let it go and just let it grow, it's going to reproduce by seed from those little turkey leg flowers that it pops up and then spread seed that way. Underground, you have rhizomes and stolons. The, the rhizomes basically are the underground root system of the plant. And the stolons are the trailing part that go out horizontally that I'm sure you've seen with Bermuda grass. Mm-hmm. All three of those can reproduce vegetatively, which is just a fancy way of saying you can't kill it unless you do certain things. Right. So that's my issue. Uh, and if I manage to get all of the Bermuda grass dug out of the raised bed, what do I do to keep it from coming back? That's a good question because you can never kill Bermuda grass a portion of Bermuda grass, if you just left a, a like an inch of a Bermuda grass in that raised bed, it could stay there and not germinate or spread for 50 years. And then all of a sudden, your grandchildren will be pulling the uh, Bermuda grass from the raised bed. So the best option after you've basically taken out as much as you can is to solarize the soil. And that's a process of using clear plastic during the warm months, June, July, August. You only need to do it for about eight to 10 weeks in that time. But a raised bed is a perfect way to do soil solarization because you've already got the frame. You can secure the clear plastic along the edges and just leave it there. And that soil is going to heat up to 140 degrees. It's going to kill weed seeds. It's going to kill whatever is left of the Bermuda grass down to a foot and a half to two feet. But the the trick is to use clear plastic and do it during the hottest time of the year, which means you're going to lose that bed for summer gardening. That's okay. I can I can lose it for one summer if it means I'll have a clean bed to start with. Okay. The, there are some special clear plastics you can buy, but actually if you just go to the big box store, go to the paint department and look for their uh, clear plastic drop cloths, they're usually two mil or four mil thick. Just use that. Just spread that. But the key, though, when you're ever solarizing, before you solarize, after you've cleared off the weeds, before you put that clear plastic down, Soak the bed thoroughly because water is going to move the heat even deeper and it's going to allow that heat to get those weeds or particles that were left out. And the other thing, too, is to make sure air doesn't seep in from the sides. So you want to secure it along the edges all the way around. But a raised bed is very good for that. 
Uh, but uh, sometimes, though, if you get a heavy windstorm, it might rip. And be sure you get out there and seal that rip with some uh, duct tape or, or whatever. And uh, it works. I've done it. I had a 2,000-square-foot Bermuda grass lawn. <laughs> well, you remember. You're asking for trouble there. Well, yeah, exactly. And then, and then when you say, well, I don't want a Bermuda grass lawn. I want to put a garden in here. That's when the fun begins. And that involved removing, basically getting a sod cutter, taking it out, and then solarizing that area. And I did it for 8 to 10 weeks during June and July, and no Bermuda grass has reappeared in that area. So really the key, though, uh, there are several keys to this, obviously, so I hope you have a big key ring. The, the, The one major key, though, is when you're done solarizing the soil, Put some mulch on top of the bed, maybe three to four inches of mulch, because that will help not let anything that may have escaped germinate because they need light to germinate. And then you can just move that mulch aside when you go to plant. Okay. And how long do I need to keep the plastic cover on? Depends on how warm it is. Now, here in Sacramento this summer, it's, we've had spates of 100 degrees uh, temperatures for days in a row. You can get away with eight weeks, six to eight weeks with that. If you live in a cooler climate, you may want to leave it on a little bit longer. But the key is do it whenever the hottest time of the year is wherever you live. So here in Sacramento County, that's basically from mid-June through mid-August, maybe even late August. It might be a little late to start now. It depends on how you think the weather's going to turn. Yeah, probably so. But it's okay. It gives me a plan for next year. So There you go. And in the meantime, you can be just pulling away that Bermuda. So excited. (laughs) Thanks for the question. Thank you, Fred. You want to start the backyard fruit and nut orchard of your dreams, but maybe you don't know where to begin. Or maybe you're currently growing fruit and nut trees and you've got a million questions, such as what are the tastiest fruits to grow? Where can I go to buy some of these delectable fruit and nut trees you've been reading about? And then how do you care for all of these trees, including planting, pruning, and harvesting? I've got one online stop in mind for you where all these questions you might have will get answered. It's DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest wholesaler of fruit and nut trees for the backyard garden. They have planting tips, taste test results, and links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Click on the Home Garden tab at DaveWilson.com for all of these links, including a link to their years of informative videos about growing fruit and nut trees that they've posted on the Dave Wilson Nursery YouTube channel. Start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. Nothing scares me more than seeing a group of tree trimmers emerge from an unmarked truck and start pruning or removing the neighbor's trees. My fear? It's for the financial health of my neighbors. If those workers who may or may not be certified arborists are not currently licensed, bonded, and insured, those neighbors just might be financially responsible if one of those workers is injured on their property or the tree trimming activity causes damage to their house or their neighbor's house or property. And the fact that everyone arrived in unmarked vehicles? Well, that's a red flag. On Friday's Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast, we find out more information to help you choose a qualified tree trimming firm or a tree removal firm, especially if your tree is a victim of a very common summertime occurrence 
sudden limb failure when big branches come crashing to the ground on a hot, non-windy afternoon. And yes, besides talking arborists, we'll have more information about this poorly understood problem of old large oaks, eucalyptus, elms, and ash trees. The key to reducing the chance of this happening on your property is to bring in an arborist for an evaluation before it happens, perhaps a consulting arborist. It's all part of Friday's Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast. Find a link in the newsletter in today's show notes or visit our website, gardenbasics.net, where you can sign up to have the free Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter delivered to your inbox each Friday morning. Also at GardenBasics.net, you can listen to any of our previous editions of the Garden Basics podcast, as well as read a transcript of the podcast episode you're listening to now. It's at GardenBasics.net. For current newsletter subscribers, look for all about arborists and sudden limb failure in the next Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. It's coming out the morning of Friday, August 19th. You'll find it in your email. Take a deeper dive into gardening with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. It's free. Find the link at GardenBasics.net. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Garden Basics, it's available wherever podcasts are handed out. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, GardenBasics.net. And that's where you can find out about the free Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you so much for listening.